Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us on the podcast, Mike Richmond, an investment banker based in New Jersey, and part two of our two-part episode in our interviews with Mike. In this episode, Mike shares how an importer of garden plants and supplies that was growing like crazy and making tons of money couldn't get sold. You might be asking yourself, why would a company that was growing by leaps and bounds and making a lot of money not be able to find a buyer? Well, you're just going to have to listen and find out why and what is being done to fix this problem. I think you'll find this episode particularly interesting because you can learn what not to do when positioning your company for sale and avoid a lot of headaches in the future if you follow the right steps to position your company for an eventual exit. Next, Mike shares a story about a third-generation security and door hardware distributor that was the premier value-added distributor in an industry that was charging sometimes as much as double over what their competitors were charging. You'll need to listen to this episode and learn how Mike was able to leverage secrets in the company that even the current third-generation owners didn't really understand and be able to leverage this into getting a sky-high valuation for the company. I think you'll find this episode interesting because it really outlines what the real value in a company can be, and how owners need to understand where their value is locked up in their company. If they can do this, they can increase the value of their company enormously. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today, we're here with part two with Michael Richmond, where he's going to share a couple of additional transactional stories with us. But I'm going to have Michael just introduce uh, himself to you again. Mike, would you take a few minutes uh, and just tell us where you're located and what firm you're with? Well, thank you, Marvin. Uh, my name is Michael Richmond. Um, I'm a managing director at the DAC Group. Uh, we are an investment bank uh, located in New Jersey, about a half hour, half hour outside of New York City. And uh, we cater exclusively to uh, the middle market in terms of transactions. All right. Mike, I'm excited to jump back in here. Uh, Mike has shared a couple of uh, other transactional stories on part one of this episode, and uh, we're going to continue on with a couple of more transactional stories that uh, he seems to deal in this uh, market of unique type of companies that he comes across and deals with. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to jump in, Mike. Why don't you go ahead and talk about a transaction that had its challenges and maybe closed, maybe did not, and kind of outline uh, how you were introduced to this company and what type of company it was, and kind of how the transaction unfolded for our audience here. So I'd like to talk about a company where the transaction is is on hold right now. So when you say on hold, does this mean you got you in, were engaged and you started to go down the pathway to get to an exit, and then something happened that the suggestion or your recommendation was is to kind of 
take a time out and regroup? Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yes, that's exactly what, what happened here. So in this case, um, just to give some background on the company, this company imported garden products uh, from Europe for sale in Canada and the United States. So gardening products like, is this seeds or seeds, is this- Seeds, planters, uh, anything that you have in their garden, they would, uh, would, would import. Are you talking seeds as well as hardware? Hardware, pots, decorative everything. activity, okay. everything. Where were they being imported from? So they were being imported from Holland for the most part and Vietnam and let's say the Far East in terms of a split where the, the seeds and some from Canada as well. Um, and so they, they, they were very selective um, and brilliant in terms of their sourcing. So they sourced, sourced internationally and were able to really get quality product, best price from the best location. Well, the situation like that, from my experience, is that in order to pull something like that off logistically, uh, you have to have a pretty good management team in place that is really on top of their game because that market changes so dynamically. So what type of management team uh, was in place here? So you're absolutely right, Marvin. They had some brilliant logistic managers that were able to manage the sourcing and um, shipping and uh, delivery uh, from all over the world. And again, you have a pretty narrow window. When you're dealing with garden supplies, you have a narrow delivery window. If you're late and you miss the season, your product's worthless. So it's got to get into the stores the right time. You have to have the sell through. Um, and if you don't, if you haven't sold it all out by by May, um, <laughs> you're going to be paying some chargeback dollars. So the customers were nurseries and big box stores. Who were the customers? Big box stores. Yes, um, exactly that. And uh, some really, uh, I would say more big box stores, pretty much all the big box stores um, they were selling to, certainly in Canada, and they were expanding uh, in the United States. Well, as this transaction unfolded, um, what caused uh, the concern? It sounds like, were the, and it sounds like you said they were kind of growing. I mean, it was a good business and great management team, and they were growing, right? So they were growing rapidly with a great management team, I would say, in the front of the office in terms of the sales, sourcing, distribution, logistics. Where they were having some challenges was the back office, um, they, 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 the accounting and support functions. So one of the things that the first thing we do, particularly with a company that's dealing with multi-currency, they're importing from Europe, they're Vietnam, they're selling into Canada, the U.S.-based, was to make sure that their financials really uh, tie in, they're supportable. And um, we actually brought in a, a, a firm uh, to do a quality of earnings analysis. Well, for our audience that may not be familiar with that quality of earnings uh, report or analysis, uh, explain a little bit about what that is. So we have a, another accounting firm do a, a check on their financials to make sure as the turtle, as the title says, that the earnings have have quality to them, that there isn't uh, some unusual one-time effects, both positive or negative, to take out any personal expenses to get to get a true uh, reflection of what this company is making. And and let's face it, a lot of private companies do everything they can to minimize taxes. And when you sell a company, 
Your goal is not to show the lowest earnings, but to show the true earnings of a company. And a quality of earnings will typically reflect and reverse uh, one-time charges or personal expenses that that truly don't belong in a company's uh, income statement. Are those quality of earnings report expensive? So they vary. Um, we tend to go to a, and again, I don't I don't mean second tier in, in a negative way, but we tend not to use what I, the big four firms because they're very expensive. We don't use a, a mom and pop firm because they don't have credibility in the marketplace. So we tend to use a, like I said, a second tier, and those could be forty to sixty thousand dollars, depending on the extensivity, how how extensive uh, an analysis is needed. Well, I've even heard some quality earnings reports a little bit less than that, but uh, it's not inexpensive. But the value I've found for companies that take the time and do that and expend the funds and. It's more of an investment than it is an expense because you always, I, I don't think of any situation that I'm aware of where the quality of earnings report haven't returned multiple times the amount of money that was spent. Correct. I mean, if it, let's say if you're spending 50000 on a, on a and, and you're selling a company for for six times and they find $50,000 of, of, of earnings that, of costs that really... Um, should be added back that were one time or personal costs, you're getting $300,000 valuation for a $50,000 cost. So you're absolutely right. It's almost always the case. And what's also very important to understand is the buyers are all going to do a quality of earnings at their end. And it's important to be prepared for that because they're going to dig down deeply into the company and where it may take a while for a company to prepare for their what we call the sell side, the 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 quality of earnings report that they engage in. Um, we need to be prepared to move quickly at the back end of a, a deal when the buyer is doing their due diligence. So, how did the quality of earnings report turn out in this particular situation? So, in this particular situation, not well. Um, the company was actually faced with with two problems. One, uh, as you can imagine. Um, a company dealing with sourcing from all over the world um, these days is going to have with the container shortage and supply chain issues at the ports will have problems. Well, just to review where we're at, I just want to for our audience, um, given that we're recording here, you know, post pandemic, you know, the pandemic really upset the logistical supply chain worldwide. And with the labor issues and everything in the ports on both east and west coast in the U.S., uh, they couldn't unload the ships. There were, there were, you know, hundreds of ships lined up to unload and the ports were closed. COVID had shut things down. People weren't coming to work. Uh, and it completely upended the logistics business and the containers. The containers weren't turning over and the container to, to load containers, you couldn't find containers. And so the cost of containers was doubling and tripling and some place, sometimes quadrupling. And so the whole logistical supply chain, you know, world was in disarray. So that's kind of what these folks were facing. Is that right? Correct. Now, going back to the original point we were discussing in terms of the quality of earnings. So there's there, uh, you're dealing with a company that is sourcing products with different currencies from around the world, different cutoff points in terms of the shipments, when the, when the product gets delivered, 
when do you recognize that income? When do you recognize the costs? And we found that while their sales were growing and they were investing in the front of the office, they weren't investing enough in the back of the office. And that's something that this is a good takeaway for anyone that's listening to this podcast. I think that's critical. A lot of people invest a lot in the front side, the sales and the marketing and all of those type of things to drive top line revenue, but very little of an investment in back end. And that's what's happening here. And it turned around to bite them. Correct. That's exactly what happened. So our quality of earnings accountants basically said, look, we can't sign off on these numbers. Not that they're doing an audit or even a review, but they produce a report where they're where they're showing some confidence in these numbers and they could not do that. And they advised the company to go in, hire a, a controller or maybe a, a temporary CFO to advise the controller how to fix the books. But the company needed to go back literally two years and um, and correct some errors in their book. They, they were okay from a tax perspective, but but from a gap from reporting the earnings on a consistent basis. Now, gap for our audience there, that's generally accepted accounting principles is what any company would use, accrual-based type of accounting to adjust to earnings to reflect actual earnings instead of the fluctuations you see in, in cash-based reporting. Correct. So, it, so at this point, we advise them to, to stop and take a pause and, and do this work for two reasons. One, we the, the supply chain issues are beginning to resolve themselves so we can get a true reflection of the company's earnings on a go-forward basis. But more importantly, they could spend the time, improve the back office, hire the right people, and then we can go back and, and, and um, really sell the company on the basis of a true reflection of their historical earnings power. All right. Well, that's that's interesting. So from what I understand that you're talking about here, uh, you kind of called time out and everyone is recircling and regrouping and upgrading and, you know, kind of getting teed up. So you're going to come back to market in the future because you have a great company, it sounds like. Business is growing. Sales are increasing. It's just that it's difficult to validate what the actual earnings are because of the complete disarray. Uh, in the back end, they just had their back end couldn't keep up with the front end is what you're saying. And that is a big challenge for a buyer because they don't know how to value the company and what to base their valuation on. And so you're telling me they're going to come back into the market down the road. Correct. Correct. So I, I think the takeaway message here is sometimes when you prepare for a sale, sometimes you'll you'll realize you're not ready for a sale. And that was the case here. And you'd rather, it's much cheaper, cheaper to do that. You don't want to do this in the middle of the process. You don't want to go down the road, spend money on an investment banker, spend money on accountants, spend money on lawyers, and then be faced with a situation a deal can't close. Do your homework up front. Realize, get your company ready to sell, and then it'll be much smoother, more efficient, and hopefully much more profitable process. Well, for any of our audience that's listened to the podcast here, there are plenty heartbreaking stories of hundreds of thousands or tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars being spent uh, trying to get a deal closed and it doesn't close. And those dollars are lost forever. 
Uh, and sometimes uh, the company never does recover because you get everyone all teed up to sell and, and then the sell doesn't happen. And then it's really hard for the founder entrepreneurs and some of the management team to get back into the frame of mind of managing and growing the company. So uh, I think your takeaway here is really good is to, in this particular situation, they were getting ready to sell, realized they weren't ready to sell, and then took a time out. And then they're going to come back into the market. And I think that's a good takeaway for every one of our audience out there that are founder entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about selling and how you actually uh, should go about that process. So great takeaway, Mike. So let's jump over to a transaction that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps had a little bit uh, better outcome, at least initially here. It sounds like the one, the story we just talked about uh, is going to have a happy ending one of these days. But let's talk about something that uh, was a little bit more current in its realization of uh, a closing transaction. Sure. Thanks. So um, this company um, we, that we successfully sold was a value-added distributor. Talk about what a value-added distributor really means for those that might not be familiar with that term. Okay. So um, great question. You have dis- uh, You have manufacturers on one side. You have consumers at the other end. In the middle, you'll have distributors. You'll have some distributors that simply, for whatever reason, will locally distribute a product. You'll see that with a lot of times with food. Um, I mean, many industries have local distribution. You mentioned like food here. A distributor in the food business has different companies they deal with. They bring all the food into a warehouse and then they distribute it locally and they add very little value. It's just a logistical you know, transfer type of situation, making the process more efficient, but adding very little value. Now, food is one example where it's kind of hard for the manufacturer to go directly to the consumer. But there are many industries right now where the distributor is being eliminated with a manufacturer due to the Internet, due to better logistics, will be able to sell directly to the end user. So it's very important in the distribution industry to distinguish between a distributor who's just taking product and shipping it out, maybe breaking up the boxes into smaller units and selling and, and sending it out, and a, and a distributor that's adding value. So give me an idea. In this particular situation, how did the distributor add value? What made him a value-added distributor? Okay, great question. So in this case, this company was uh, distributing anything that goes on the door from the lock to the closing bar to any decorative hardware to hinges when you say locks like security systems security systems but could be electronic it could be manual um you know i'll give you an example you know my, my son kept forgetting his key and i wanted to put a uh you know a a push button lock on my door was it residential and but I, I I ordered one on Amazon and it came in and it was it was the wrong product. I just didn't know what to order. And of course, like you can't ask somebody in Amazon. Um, so actually, when I was selling this company, I asked them and they literally said, measure your door this way uh, where the hole is from the end of the lock. And then and they got me the perfect product for it. So I want to go back to this because I think this is important to understand this concept of value added. So in Amazon, you really can't talk to anybody. You you see 
and have to kind of figure it out yourself. Here you were able actually to talk to somebody who told you specifically what to do because they had the product knowledge, they had the understanding, and you could be the the process was facilitated because of the knowledge they had, which added value to the transaction, and the product you ordered was the right product. And so I would imagine in some types of situations like that, they could charge a premium price. Correct. So let's take a Starbucks, for example. You have a company that services all the Starbucks stores. These stores, their doors are opening, closing, you know, thousands of times a week. In a, in a in a tough winter, they, they're going to get wet, they're going to get salt, they're going to corrode, they're going to get damaged, and they're going to have to be replaced. Now, you're a contractor responsible for maintaining um, Starbucks. You've got to get that right mechanism in, and you're not going to know what to put in there. So I, w- I want to go back here and just clarify something. You know, Starbucks and other large national chains, whether they're independently owned like Starbucks being corporately owned or franchise companies out there, they have companies they contract with on a national basis that are maintenance people that are general maintenance that do, you know, the type of upkeep and maintenance on the physical facility, but they don't know a lot about locks. Right. And they, I mean, they, they'll maybe not replace the chairs and the, but so they will call up the company and say, Hey, look, we're, we have, uh, you know, a, a dozen or two dozen stores. The doors aren't closing right. And by the way, you can't leave the door open at night. So you've got to get the part right away and get that door fixed or fix it before it gets to a point where the door can't close. So that's just one example. So the value added here was they were able to find the right product for the right solution. You might have a contractor redoing an office building. And the doors are typically the last thing to go in. And doors are every different size, different weights. There's different mechanisms that there's a closer on the door to make sure it closes slowly, that it doesn't snap into somebody. All these all these parts they sold. And not to belabor it, but they knew the right part. So they really were a distributor. They had to have the right parts on inventory too. So there was a... Correct. So, yeah. so what was the value in this company? A, they... They knew their salespeople were not just order takers, but they were problem solvers. They were really value added. They had the right products in stock. They had the relationships with the suppliers that they can get the product really quickly if they needed it. And they had an e-commerce platform that wasn't quite frankly an Amazon, but was an e-commerce platform which had a phone number on it. So you got to there, you picked out a lock. And then there was somebody to call and say, should I order this or should I order that? And you're absolutely right, Marvin, because of the value added, um, they got premium pricing. So their margins were well above uh, the industry value. So what was the challenge here? The owner's modesty. When you ask the owner, why are your margins better than the industry? He'll say, well, I don't know, I got good people. And the truth of the matter is he did have good people, but he trained his people that they could become, you know, value-added salespeople rather than just order takers. He knew to, to stock the right inventory, that um, contractors and his customers could know they can order from him and get the product overnight, or in some cases they could drive to his to his warehouse and pick up the product. Um, and they had some strong supplier relationships. So if if they needed some unique products, they can get them quickly 
from the suppliers. So let me ask you, in a situation like this where you have, were there a lot of suppliers that provided and sourced to the company or what was the supplier landscape out there? So very good point there. In this industry, there's been a tremendous consolidation and it's really dominated by about four players who dominate the the industry and any um, anybody in this space will have a supplier concentration, meaning you know, 25, 30% of, of their their sales will be coming from one supplier. Well, that now for our audience here, supplier concentration of 25, 30, 40% to one or a small group of suppliers raises a red flag and is not something that buyers traditionally will devalue a company because of their supplier concentration. How did you overcome that? So we educated the, the, the we, we addressed the problem right up front in our in our materials, in our confidential information memorandum, we discussed the industry landscape and, and basically explained if you want to get into this space, there, there are four players. We have spoken to these players. They are not interested in selling to the end user. They understand the value added nature of the distributors. And on a national scale, they knew they couldn't do that. If you're selling a product in New York, that's going to have different challenges than if you're selling a product in uh, in Miami, let's say, where there's a lot of humidity and rain or, or on the shore where there's a lot of salty air. So they understood that there's different regional demands for their product and they needed to sell through distributors. So... Um, we were able to convince any potential buyers that yes, there is a supplier concentration, but no, there isn't a risk that this supplier is going to go direct to the end user. So what's the big takeaway here? Uh, you have a great company, great management. You have some issues that if, aren't, if not handled properly, would devalue the company. In this particular case, it was supplier concentration, but you were able to address that. So what did you need to do with management so that they were kind of, you know, when a when a buyer comes in, they're going to want to talk to management and the advisors and the management need to be on the same page. What did you really have to do? Because obviously the buyers, when you asked them what made your company unique and where was the value, they really couldn't nail that down. What did you have to do to get the buyers kind of teed up so that they really understood their business better and could respond to questions from serious buyers? So. What we basically had to do was to get the owner to think of his business not from um, from looking at it from the outside and say, what is what does your company do better than others? And and it, it really was pulling teeth to get to understand the value added prospect of his business. You know, an owner's in the business every day selling. And sometimes they need to take a step back and see what makes their business special? What drives their business? Why are their margins better than their competitors? And if they do it every day, they don't necessarily pause and, and, and think about it. And these, what we really had to do was spend a lot of time from, from, to, to really you know, pull out from him what makes his business special. And then we had to prep him to speak to potential buyers not in the super modest way of saying, well, 
you know, it's all natural. It's it's the people they put it together. But him to list specifically, um, you know, what makes the company great. And and to be candid, you know, we we had some practice sessions, and I got to tell you, they were terrible because the guy is like a super modest guy and said, "Hey, I got some good people. We're in the right place," you know. But it was really him. And and yes, he did have great people, but put together a really fantastic company. Well, it sounds like the structure of the deal. And once you got uh, the story down and the value articulated to the buyers and actually having the, the founder and the other management team members understand really what was special about their company, you were able to then get the right buyer to the table and, uh, you know, consummate a deal that I, the deal that I'm sure was better than they thought that their, their company was worth. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this was, uh, the valuation came in a lot higher. It came in higher, quite frankly, than we, we expected to, because on the surface, we didn't really see the value added. And it took us a, a while to dig down deep and to understand, you know, why this company was growing, why they were so entrenched with their customers. And, you know, so at first we were looking at it really purely on a multiple of earnings. And then we came to realize there's a lot more than just the earnings. But there's, you know, when you when you solve problems, your customers are going to come back. And they found that there was a tremendous repeat rate among these contractors. Every time they had a problem, their first call was to these guys. And they didn't ask what the price was. They just said, could you ship it out today? That was their question. Sounds like a great business when people don't ask what the price is, just I need it and I need it today and uh, uh, just send it to me and I'll pay whatever it is. And because if you can't lock the door at night, that's a big deal. Exactly. Uh, well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Mike. Uh, I think that our audience will benefit from the takeaways from the transactional stories you've had both in part one and part two of our episodes here and talking to you. Uh, Mike, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you to chat a little bit more about their specific situation, how would they do that? Well, first, Marvin, thank you. I got to tell you, I really enjoy talking with you. Uh, if they want to reach me, they can reach me at my email, which is M uh, for Michael M. Richmond, like Virginia, R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D at DAC group, D-A-K group.com. Well, again, Mike, thanks for being here. And this is Marvin L. Storm saying that we'll see you on our next episode of Business Exit Stories. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.